If you have a Bible, I encourage you to open it to 2 Corinthians, find chapter 4. And for the next few minutes, I want to prepare you to die well. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I said a few weeks ago that uh, the bad news and the good news, all wrapped in one statement, is 100 years from now, there's going to be all new people. And the first Sunday of every year, for I think every year, of Grace Church's existence, it's our 12th birthday coming next month, the first Sunday of every year for the last 11 years, we've preached a sermon around the core of the core of the core of the Bible, which is what we call our vision and our mission. Why do we exist and what are we going to do? Our vision is simply this, to enjoy God forever. For endless eternities, God has existed in the happy fellowship of himself, pure delight, endless exuberance. The Father, rejoicing in His Son by the power of the Holy Spirit, has been the glad feast of God from forever. And because God is appropriately delighted in God as His highest enjoyment, God's greatest gift that He could ever give to a human soul is Himself. And from this truth, it naturally flows that the Christian's greatest delight is God. And therefore, the great work of Christians is to propagate God as the greatest gift that God gives to other people. That is our vision. That is our mission as a church. God exists to glorify God. If that sounds controversial to you, I encourage you to dig with me in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. The way God glorifies himself is mainly by delighting in his eternal son, by treasuring Jesus. The aftermath or the overflow of God's delight in his son is spreading his own eternal joy by the power of the Holy Spirit to people like you and me through the gospel message of Christ. Put more simply, God glorifies God by treasuring Jesus Christ and spreading his eternal joy. That may sound like a bunch of spiritual mumbo jumbo to you, but I promise you that that will prepare you to die well not long from now. The aim of the Christian and the vision of Grace Church is to glorify God by treasuring Jesus Christ and spreading his eternal joy. And I find it in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, among many, many, many other places. Hear the word of the living God as I read from the New American Standard Translation the entire chapter. I dare you to listen carefully. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, 
but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus. So that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake. So that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death works in us, but life in you. Verse 13. But having the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believe, therefore I spoke. We also believe, therefore we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you. For all things are for your sakes, so that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart. But though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. This is the word of the Lord. And would you join me again as we ask for God's blessing as we consider it. Father, I ask you that you would do the miracle now. The miracle where you confront people with yourself and you arrest people's hearts for your glory. That you would allow us to see what Peter, James, and John saw in the Mount of Transfiguration. The glory of Jesus unveiled. Oh God, would you by your Holy Spirit crack the door of heaven and let us look inside. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there are two points that I want to lay before you from chapter 4. And then three points of application that also come from the very same chapter. The first point is this. The ministry. There are not two or ten or ten thousand. The ministry that God endorses, that he approves, that he's honored by, comes from God. We don't make it up. This isn't a fairy tale religion. In fact, if all the people in the history of the world would have been called upon to devise a plan for how God could save wretches like you and me and still remain God, not only would none of us have come up with it, but let's just suppose for a minute that one among the billions of people who've ever lived would have come up with the plan. God must sacrifice his own son in order to deal with the atrocity of our crime and uphold the honor of his justice. Who among our fellow creatures would have had the audacity to take their little puny self up to the throne room of heaven, knock on his door and suggest to him the plan. The ministry that God is honored by comes from God. That's verses 1 and 2. Verse 1. Therefore, since we have received this ministry. Therefore, since we have received this ministry. What ministry are you talking about? Well, if you just go back into chapter 3, you'll find out that he's talking about the ministry that Moses foreshadowed. Moses in the Old Testament, leading the people of Israel out of Exodus, out of uh, Egypt, through the Exodus, parting the Red Sea, Sinai glory coming down, law given, uh, manna provided, tabernacle erected, glory of God among his people. Moses seeing God, his own face, Moses is starting to shine because he beheld the glory of God, but it faded away. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, that that is just a prelude to the glory that we're supposed to behold day by day in the face of Christ. Not with a veil over our face, but unveiled, looking at God in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit because he is our great delight. This ministry, beholding Jesus, seeing clearer and clearer Visions of who Christ is and what God has done in him for the salvation of our souls and everlasting reconciliation to him and forever enjoyment of him. This ministry, Paul says, 
we received. Verse 1, as we received mercy, we do not lose heart. We have a ministry on the basis of the mercy we receive. Therefore, we don't lose heart. What Paul is basically saying is this. You may never believe what I'm saying. But my saying it to you is not predicated on whether or not you believe it. I'm saying it to you because God in his mercy has been gracious to the most undeserving sinner in the universe. And I'm going to tell you about him whether you receive him or not. So he decides to not do some things and positively to do some other things. Verse 2, he renounces some things. Verse 3, he takes up some things. Verse 2, we renounce things hidden because of shame. We do not walk in craftiness. We do not adulterate, prostitute the word of God. Craftiness, I'm not trying to trick you. There's no bait and switch here. You will either give your life to Jesus Christ as your greatest treasure, or you will perish in hell eternally. I say that to you out of love and with a broken heart. There is no craftiness. There is no bait and switch. There's no cloak and dagger. There's no craftiness here. There's no trickery. There's no scheming. But Paul goes on to say in verse 2, we do not adulterate the word of God. We don't prostitute the word of God. You know there are many who do that, right? You can make the Bible say anything you want it to say. You can take verse from here and a verse from there and you can jump them together in your little pot of stew and you can make it come out and say whatever you want. Paul says, no, no, no. We're not prostituting God's word. We're not adulterating his word. We're not going to dress it up in clothes to make it look like something we want it to look like or sound like something that we want it to sound like. We're not adulterating the word of God. So the ministry that God honors and is honored by is the ministry that's on the basis of the mercy of God in Christ. So verse 3 talks about the positives. This is what we do. We don't walk in craftiness. We don't adulterate the word of God. We, by the manifestation of truth, verse 2, commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. I said 3, but that's 2. Verse 2. We just manifest the truth. And we ask you to look at our lives. Not as the litmus test for whether or not it's true, but as the litmus test of whether or not that truth actually changes people. Here I am, works and all, God saved me. Not on the basis of my righteousness or the deeds that I have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, Christ alone. That's the ministry. But what's that ministry about? What's the focus of that ministry? What's the heart of the gospel? This is verses 3 to 6. This is where we get the sermon title. The glory of God in the face of Christ. Verses 3 to 6 is the second point I want to lay before you. Not only the ministry that God honors and is honored by, but especially what true gospel ministry focuses on. Verses 3 to 6 says very plainly that the focus of all faithful gospel ministry is the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now I need you to listen to me very carefully. I'm begging you to. I don't need you to because if you don't, then we lose. No, God wins. But I need you to for you. Because I get... Half an hour or 45 minutes or some of you have been around here long enough to know that sometimes a little longer than that. But I have precious little time to try to persuade you of the most important things in the universe. And the world's talking to you the minute you walk out of here until the minute you come back in. And they get hours and hours and hours and gods and gods of stuff to say to you. And meanwhile, Satan's tinkering with your heart. And I need you for you to listen to me for just a few minutes. Why are so many people blind to the brightest light in the universe? Why can people not see what is so obviously clear to see? This passage's answer is because they're headed to hell where Christ's glory will be obscured from their sight forever. Verse 3, if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Perishing. 
Do I get kicks out of preaching this? No. Do I have some axe to grind? No. Help our brimstone? No. I'm here today because I don't want you to perish. If you can't see what I'm about to talk about, it's because this verse, not me, if you don't like it, your argument's not with Jordan, it's with Jesus of Nazareth. If you don't see what I'm about to tell you, this passage says you have to see. You have to see the brightest light in the universe. And if you can't see it, this verse, verse 3 says it's because you're perishing. Why can't you see it? The verse goes on to say, verse 4, in whose case, that's the perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. They're blinded in their minds, in their unbelief, from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Who blinded them? The God of this world. The God of this world. You read John 12, 31, and you'll find out who that is. That's Satan himself. You read John 16, 11, and you'll find out again. That is Satan, the God of this world. You read Ephesians 2, 2, and you'll find out for a third time that Satan. And if you'll flip over to 1 John chapter 5, verse 19, you'll find it out again. There is no mistake to be made. The reason that our focus here at Grace Church, our vision, is treasuring Jesus Christ is because seeing Him and trusting Him is the only solution to mankind's spiritual blindness and eternal death. The spiritual blindness of many in Corinth was not because Paul's message was obscure or hard to understand. All of you can understand the words if you're alert enough, enough to listen. You can understand the words I'm saying. Paul's message was similarly not obscure. It wasn't hard to understand. That's not why they were blind. They were blind because Satan was influencing them. In fact, when Paul came to Corinth in 1 Corinthians, he said, all I did was preach Christ and Him crucified. 1 Corinthians 2.2. He did this not in cleverness of speech. So the cross of Christ would not be made void. 1 Corinthians 1.17. His preaching, his message, he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 4-5, to was just simple words accompanied by the power of the Holy Spirit. So that people's faith would not rest on the wisdom of a man, but on the power of God. So when Paul explained in another place to King Agrippa in the book of Acts, his conversion to Christ, do you know what he said? He just said, there's light. I see. I see Christ as all satisfying and all glorious. Let me allow Paul to say it in his own words. Acts 26. Listen for light. Listen for sight. At midday, O king, Paul said to Agrippa, I saw on the way to Damascus a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining all around me. Those who were journeying with me saw it, and when they had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, this is Jesus, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but get up and stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you, to point to appoint you as a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things which will appear to you. Rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the dominion of Satan to God, do you see the parallel? So that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. Everywhere Paul went, he just kept saying the same thing. The reason that King Agrippa couldn't see it, the reason that many people in Corinth couldn't see it, the reason that a lot of people in our own city, most of the people in our city today, and unfortunately some in this very room, cannot see is not because Paul failed to make it crystal clear. If you do not see Christ today as more desirable than anything the world could afford you, 
If you do not embrace Jesus, I'm not saying embrace Him perfectly all the time without fail. I'm saying when you come to your senses under the kinds of things that I'm saying to you now, in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, if you do not see Jesus Christ as the greatest treasure in the universe, then God's calling on my life. Verse 1, the ministry I received is to say to you as plainly as I possibly can how you can be saved. You see, a lot of people say, no, Jesus is boring and the world is fascinating. But when the new birth happens to you, you say, Jesus is fascinating and the whole world is known to me. If you're not a Christian, or even if you think you are one, please listen carefully and prayerfully as I joyfully tell you the good news of God's saving love. The gospel is simply this. Verse 3 and verse 4 say, if our gospel is covered up, it's covered up to people who are headed for hell, perishing, in whose case Satan, the God of this world, has blinded their mind. Well, wouldn't it be nice if God would just rip that veil off? Here's how that happens. He announces to you, He proclaims to you. He speaks to you. And what he says to you is even though you've been rebelling against me since you drew your first breath, because your breath flowed out of a cavernous and depraved heart, A heart that even before you were born, when you were conceived, was infected with a terminal illness called sin that you inherited from your forefathers, who inherited that from our first father. Adam, in the Garden of Eden with his wife Eve, in high-handed mutiny against the King of Glory, put their fist in God's face, and they said, on the day they were created, most likely, you will not rule over me. I will be my own God. I will do what I want to do, when I want to do it, how I want to do it, regardless of what you say. It was their attempt to usurp God. Adam and Eve in the Garden, yes, they fell into sin, but a more accurate way to put it was they put their grubby foot in God's chest, attempting to dismount him from his throne so that they could sit as their own God on the throne of their hearts. And every human being who's ever been born is infected with that same sin. But God, in mercy unspeakable, we're talking about a category that if all the billions of people in the history of the world could come together and try to devise a plan, would not have come up with it. And as I said a minute ago, if one among the billions would have come up with it, who would have had the audacity to say to God, no, God came up with the plan. In fact, when Jesus said he was headed to the cross, Peter said, no, 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 no. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. Satan doesn't want Jesus to die on the cross. Satan didn't come up with the plan of the cross. No man came up with the plan of the cross. God came up with the plan of the cross. And Jesus said, you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Whose interests? God. The cross is the plan of God. You see, though we are all depraved in our rebellion against Him, this sin-sick sea of humanity that has lived in one constant wave of rebellion against our King, our Creator, our Maker, that God, instead of just kicking us off of His planet and throwing us into the lowest corner of the devil's hell, this God gave His favorite His only begotten, the beloved Son, the Son of His love, the second person of the Trinity, God the Son. He sent Him through the womb of the Virgin Mary to be born in obscurity, to be raised in relative obscurity in a little place, in a little country that hardly anybody knew about. And this one, this Son, This virgin-born son was none other than the second person of the Godhead. He himself being fully God and man. Truly man and truly God. This one lived the life before the face of God that you should have lived. Jesus the Lord 
the earthly son of Mary and stepson by adoption of Joseph. This one, this one is himself God. And this one, after having lived the life that you were supposed to live, in perfect obedience to his father, in nothing but love and honor and glory and praise to his father. Not only that, doing nothing except for good to his common man. Always speaking what is true. Always acting in ways that would accord with the flourishing of humanity and the good of his fellow man. This one, having lived that kind of life, just as God had ordained, was nailed to a cross outside of Jerusalem by the hands of sinful men because we hated him that much. We couldn't tolerate such a man. So we put him on a tree. And as the Lord Jesus Christ suffered and died, God was accomplishing the purposes of the ages. The glorious Savior was achieving propitiation. He was satisfying the demands of God's justice for your sin against him. God was upholding his honor by a perfect sacrifice, perfectly meeting out all of his wrath in a way that was fully satiated. God was propitiated. God was honored in the sacrifice of Jesus, though he had committed no sin for sinners like you and I. And in addition to that, in addition to that, this Jesus was opening up the wounds of his human body as a symbol of the openness of his glorious heart to say that anybody who will enter into him by faith will be covered up in his righteousness such that God the Father will look on sinners like you and me, forgiving us of all of our debts against God and making us righteous in his sight forever. This is a doctrine called double imputation. He gets your sin and we get his righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 And if you can't see that gospel, if you can't see that this Jesus died in your stead, and that he rose again victoriously from the grave. And that he is the treasure of heaven and the treasure of the hearts of all of his people. It's not because you can't hear. It's because you can't see. It's because you're blind. John Calvin said the sun has no less brightness because blind men do not see its light. What is it that fascinates Christians? What do they see? How do we know somebody's saved? The answer is not because you prayed prayer one day or like Latrell earlier in this service, you got baptized. That's not how you become a Christian. The answer is Christians see in Christ Jesus what God sees in Christ Jesus. We see an all-glorious, all-satisfying, supreme treasure who we love and desire because He paid our debt. And He credits to us His righteousness so that we can be brought into the family of God forever. Now, I want you to look carefully at the parallelism of verse 4 and 6 before we leave this point. Verse 4. Satan doesn't want you to see this. The light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Verse 6. But God has shown in our heart to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Verse 4. The light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Verse 6. The light of the knowledge of the, pardon me, verse six, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Verse four, the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. The knowledge of God is seen in the glory of Christ. Verse four, because Christ is the image of God. Therefore, verse six, he gives us the face of Christ. That's why we say Jesus is the greatest treasure in the universe. He reveals God to us. To see Jesus is to see God. He is the image of God. You and I are made in the image of God, but Jesus is God's own image. Colossians 1, John 1, Hebrews 1. So, like Paul, like the other apostles, the reason we can't stop preaching what we've seen and heard about the good news of Jesus is because we're the most undeserving candidates on the planet to receive his forgiving mercy. How can 
the most undeserving, receive the greatest treasure and not glorify God for his righteousness and for his love. It's because we cannot unsee his resplendent glory that outshines the sun in its noonday brightness that we continue to point to him and treasure him. Charles Hodge says, to see Christ's glory is to be saved. For we are thereby transformed into his likeness from glory to glory. Therefore, it is that Satan, the great adversary, directs all his energy to prevent men from becoming the subjects of that illumination, which is the gospel, as the revelation of the glory of Christ is its source. Satan doesn't want you to see Jesus. He doesn't want you to love him. Can you hear what I'm saying? Do you get it? Does it deeply resonate with you? Samuel Rutherford said, I can talk about the glory of Jesus all day, but it's like going to the ocean to dip my hands in is an illustration I've shared many times. And you walk back a thousand miles to bunch of people and say, can't you see how glorious the ocean is? And they say, what are you talking about? That's foolish. And Rutherford said, unless you go to the ocean for yourself and see how glorious it is, you'll never be amazed. So Rutherford said, I can come tell you he's glorious, he's glorious, he's glorious. But people will think, well, that's just a little puddle of water. Most of it drip down your fingers anyway. What are you talking about? I'm saying to you that if you will get your soul up and you will go to heaven's gate yourself through the scriptures with a heart full of prayer saying, Father, would you show me Jesus? Would you show me how wonderful he is and what a savior he is for sinners like me? Then you'll see for yourself. And as Ravenhill said, if you could crack the door of heaven one inch and look inside, you'll never turn around. He's heaven's favorite. Satan's number one goal is to keep you from seeing Jesus. To stop you from going to that ocean. Satan doesn't want you to know that there's an all-glorious Savior. This may sound strange to a bunch of you, but I encourage you to test whether or not it's thoroughly biblical. Satan will never mind if you do a bunch of good things. He will certainly try to convince you to, to do a bunch of bad. Satan won't mind if you hate your Bible or if you read it daily. He won't mind if you never go to church or if you never miss a Sunday. He won't mind if you do all of that, provided you never behold the glory of Jesus. Charles Simeon said, Satan is aware that no one who has a discovery of Christ's glory. Well, he is aware. Satan is aware that no one who discovers the glory of Christ will ever continue to be submissive to him. Therefore, it is the great work of Satan to accomplish this. He cares not what we know. He cares not what we do. If he can but keep us from beholding the divine image in the face of Jesus, every sort of thing like this would be ineffectual for our salvation, all the good we could do. Satan is willing that we should have every attainment in the world all knowledge, all morality, if he can but succeed in this one point to prevent us from beholding the glory of God in the face of Christ. Satan knows that nothing short of a discovery of Christ will ever save the soul. You may think that Jesus intoxicated people are totally out of touch with reality. We've got an antiquated book about an antiquated religion and it means nothing practical for today. But we Jesus intoxicated people are actually the only ones who are going to be in touch with true reality a million years from now. Christians will forever see in Christ what God has forever seen in Christ. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 and 2 Corinthians 4.6 will forever be our lot. Revelation says it so plainly. The city of heaven has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it, because the glory of God illuminates it and its lamp is the lamb, Jesus. Revelation 22, the last chapter of the Bible says this, there will no longer be any nighttime. There will be no need of the lamp or the light of the sun because the Lord God will illumine them and they will reign forever and ever. Heaven will be bright forever with the brightness of Jesus. What I'm saying to you now is the very thing that will apply to you a million years from now, which is why Ignatius in the first century said to the church at Ephesus, apart from Christ, let nothing dazzle you. 
This is why we're called a new creation. Just like God flung that little ball of fire that we call the sun in our solar system and told it to stay put. And just like he created eyeballs in our head with which we can see it, new creatures see a brighter light with new eyes. Not in our head, but from our heart. Just like he put that physical sun in that physical sky and these physical eyes in our physical head, we see similarly when God saves somebody that they have spiritual sight of a spiritual light with spiritual eyes, which is why Ephesians 1 says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Well, here's the application to verses 4 and 6. The light of the gospel of the glory of God in the face of Christ. The application is you have to do something about this. As Hunter said earlier, the gospel demands a response. You don't have the option of no response. No response is a response. The application comes in the chapter. If, if, if you see that Jesus of Nazareth is the all-satisfying Savior that verses 4 and 6 talk about, then you will have some personal resolve. Verses 7 through 11 First, you will want the personally the greatness of God's power to be seen in your life. In verse 7, you'll realize that you're just decorated dust. You're a jar of clay. You're nothing. We're not impressive. It's our God who is impressive. We're just clay pots. We're just earthen vessels. We're just jars of clay. But God has come to dwell in us. What an amazing truth. So personally... This would lead us to some resolve. Like verses 10 through 12. If we're afflicted, if we're perplexed, if we're persecuted, struck down, constantly delivered over to death, we'll personally say, but we're not crushed. And we're not despairing and we're not forsaken by God and we're not destroyed and Jesus is being manifested through my life. That's what matters. Why does God allow his people to go through things like that? Afflicted, perplexed, persecuted, struck down. Because he wants to show the universe that the all surpassing power is from God and not from us. And he wants verses 10 and 11 to happen through little people like you and me. He wants verse 10, the life of Jesus to be manifested through our mortal body. He wants verse 11, the life of Jesus to come shine through my little life. He wants to show the whole world that he is the great God who keeps his people through any and every situation. So that's personal resolve. But you also have some interpersonal goals. This is verse 13 to 15. Interpersonally. Knowing, verse 14, that every single Christian will be raised bodily just like Jesus was raised and we will be with each other forever. That'll cause us to think, hmm, I wonder what I'll be doing forever with all these other people who Jesus sent. I wonder when he raises our body from the grave, just like God raised Jesus' body from the grave. I wonder what all those raised with Jesus people will be doing. Jesus tells us, John chapter 17. He actually tells his father and just lets us listen. In John 17, Jesus says, Father, thank you so much. I thank you, Father. What did, what did Jesus tell the Father thank you for? Thank you, Father. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you, Father. Thank you. What did he thank him for? Thank you, Father. That all those whom you have given me, I praise you, Father. And I'm asking that they'll get to be with me where I am, that's his raised body, so that they can see my glory. That's why he wants us to be there. John 17, 24. So interpersonally, we have some goals now, verses 13 to 15. We want more people to hear the gospel and be converted. Why? So that more thanks will be rendered unto God and bring more glory to God. This is verse 15. Do you see this? The grace which is spreading to more and more people. 
is causing the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God, the more people who are converted, the more people whose eyes are open to see Jesus as the all-satisfying treasure and Savior and Redeemer and glorious, satisfying portion of heaven, God gets more glory. Therefore, we spread lasting joy. As we see the glory of God in the face of Christ, we tell more and more people about His saving sufficiency. And as God saves more of them, God is being glorified. That's verse 15. That's our goal. Now, you may say, well, I need to consider these things. That's fine. That's good. You need to think about these things. You need to prayerfully think about these things. And it's fine and good if you want to test them against every other religious construct that's ever been devised. The truth will always overcome the lie. The light will always outshine the darkness. There's no threat in Christianity being compared against other religions. That's fine. There's only one religion in the history of the world where the deity dies for the damned. There's only one which is unmerited favor, all grace, no work, not our righteousness. So those comparisons are fine. And and even if, if you need that, they're encouraged. But it's not just whether you need to consider or whether you need to compare. The question is, what will you do with these things? Many have just eschewed Christ and Christianity and thrown the Bible in a closet or in the trash can and just walked another way. And you may be one of them. But verses 16 to 18 says that when this gospel drops... In the heart. And when the heart rises in faith to Jesus, being made alive with Christ and raised with Him and trusting Him and turning from our sin and embracing in Jesus all that God says He is for us in Christ, for our forgiveness and for our everlasting fellowship with God, when that gospel penny drops, then the last application is verses 16 to 18. My body just keeps falling apart. Verse 16, I just keep decaying. My outer man just keeps deteriorating. But inside of me, something's happening. This new life continues to flourish and grow and mature and strengthen and become more and more conformed to the image of my dear Redeemer. That's verse 16. In verse 17, others just keep attacking. Verse 17... Momentary light affliction, hardships, wars within, fears without, all kind of challenges in this world. Attacks just keep on coming. Body keeps falling apart. Well, that doesn't sound like very good news. But then you get the other part of verse 17 and 18. An incomparable heaven awaits us. Incomparable. There aren't words that we can come up with that would adequately draw the comparison. It is not comparable. Verse 17, there is waiting for us as a result of all these afflictions and hardships and body decay and everything else for those of us who find the glory of God dazzling in the face of Christ and entrust ourselves to Him as a faithful Redeemer, there is an eternal weight of glory far beyond all Comparison. So that does something to us. And that, I said, is the last application. We therefore keep our focus on the forever in the here and now. We don't look at temporary things. We look at eternal things. God, His Word, people. We invest our lives in the things that will last forever because we know that this same Jesus who died for us and rose again is returning And when he returns, it'll be curtains on all opportunity for anybody. And so we keep our focus on the forever. Calvin says, note well why it is that we should transfer our thoughts to eternity and to the kingdom of heaven. If we look around us, a moment seems like a long time. But when we lift our hearts up to heaven, A thousand years seems like just a moment. And we look at the things that are eternal, verse 18. Therefore, we seek right now 
to glorify the eternal God. And how will we do that? By joining him in treasuring his son, verses 4 and 6. And what if we join God in valuing his son supremely, cherishing him with all our hearts, beholding the glory of God in his face, and day after day musing on his wonder and his brilliance and his love. What will happen if we treasure Jesus Christ? We'll begin, verse 15, to spread God's own joy by inviting others into fellowship with God to join us in treasuring Jesus and faithing him, trusting him with our all. I would love to guide you to faith in Jesus today. If you've never trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, if you've never believed on Jesus to be the adequate sacrifice that God requires for you to be fully forgiven, made clean before God, but better than that, to be brought close to God forever in his family as part of his children. If you don't belong to Jesus, it would be my great joy to guide you to faith in Christ. But I need to tell you something first in closing. If you come to him, he gets all of you. And Jesus said, how foolish is it for a man to start building a house only to realize halfway through he doesn't have enough money to finish the job. And so Jesus said, count the cost. So I want to be very clear. I'm not selling you a cheap Jesus. I'm not selling you anything. I'm offering you everything free. I'm offering you God himself forever. On the basis of scripture, as an ambassador of the king, I'm simply saying to you that I would love to guide you to faith in Jesus, but here's the consequence. For the rest of time and eternity, he will plant in you A desire that will never fade, only flourish to grow in biblical maturity. If you're guided to faith in Christ, you'll grow in biblical maturity, but he'll also commission you in his service for you to go with this glorious gospel to your neighbors and to all the nations so that others can come because you're not the end of all God's saving purposes. So if you've never come to Jesus and you're thinking, oh, oh, Oh man, if you would just stop talking and tell me how I could come to him. Oh, I would love to grow in him. And I would love to guide others to him if he would use me for something as glorious as that. I'd love to throw myself into the wonderful arms of this wonderful Jesus and just ask him to save me. Then why don't you just do that? Just now. Ask him. Say, Jesus, is there enough mercy in you for a sinner like me who's rebelled against you this long? And who has thought so high of myself and so little of you. Have you seen him? Chapter 3 and 4. Have you been converted? New life within. If, so, if you have seen him, then are you seeing him? Being conformed into his image. 3.18 and 4.4 4 and 4.6. Are you beholding the one who has redeemed you? If so, are you... Chapter 4, verse 13 to 15. Are you sharing him, the great commission? Are you telling others about his saving love? And if so, where's your focus? 418. Are you looking at the temporal? Or are you transfixed on the eternal? Are you magnetized to heaven? Is the anchor of heaven planted deep in your soul? And is God drawing you on that golden cord to himself day after day after day? Well, in just a moment, as Hunter said, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. And if those who come to the elements come, you should come for this reason. I'm I'm trusting in Jesus. I'm turning from all my sin. I want to unite my life with his people. And I've done that in a local church. And I want to grow in this treasuring of Jesus. I want to see what verse four is talking about and what verse six is talking about. And if you've not been saved, instead of the Lord's Supper, Why not today? Why not just turn to him now and throw yourself on his mercy now and ask him to let you join him in seeing his glory in the face of his son forever. Join me as we pray. As our heads are bowed, I'm going to ask you in just a moment to talk to the Lord silently. 
Our musicians will lead us in a chorus that will be familiar to some of you. But as they're playing and singing, some will be coming to the table. Some will be remaining seated. That's their business with the Lord. Your business with the Lord is for you to honor Him. For you to listen to Him and follow Him. If you're not a Christian or haven't been baptized or you're holding on to sin or you're not a member of a church, clearly the Scriptures teach you ought not come to the table. But everybody should deal with the Lord and examine themselves. And here's the question that in your own way, I'd like you to contemplate prayerfully for just a moment in the presence of the Lord. Lord, do I, do I really want to glorify you? And if so, does that show up in me treasuring your son? Cherishing him, prizing him, valuing him, whatever word you want to use, delighting in him, seeing him as beautiful, wonderful. And if that's happening, Lord, is... Is the aftermath or the overflow or the consequence of that? Am I sharing the love of Christ with others? Well, our response today is not, hey, I'm really good at that. It's, Lord, that's what I want my life to be about. Please help me. Please fill me. I want to guide people to Jesus. I want to grow in the maturity of the Bible with other believers. And I just want to go with this great gospel to the ends of the earth. Starting with the people close to me and purposefully going to as many as I possibly can to tell them about God's saving, loving Christ. Those are the kinds of things I'm going to ask you silently in just a moment to contemplate in the Lord's presence. If you're not a Christian, right now would be a great time for you to ask God to save you, make you his child.